the concept of submission or being subject to is a New Testament concept that is captured by a verb, hupotasso. Hupo means under, tasso means to stand, to be submitted or to be in subjection to means to stand under someone that God intends us to stand under. We are in Romans chapter 13 this morning, and we are going to see that God calls each and every one of us to submission to some very concrete persons. And as you turn to Romans chapter 13 for the sermon entitled simply Submit, I'd like us to see that this concept of submission or being in subjection to is a military term. We are to stand under the person who has authority over us. Like in the military, the rank below stands under the rank above. And it'll be interesting today for us to see the commands of God for us in Romans 13 as to whom we are to stand under. Let's look at verse 1 of Romans 13. Let every person, that means you, and that means me, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. What we're going to see in this hard-hitting and very practical chapter is that God is commanding each of us to stand under, to submit to, one, the governing authorities. We see that in verses one through five. Two, we are to stand under and submit to our creditors. That's verses six and seven. And third, we are to submit to God Almighty, verses eight through 14, in a way that is very practically worked out as to how we love each other and love the world yet without Christ. So again, let's look at verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Will you notice that this morning, God calls you to stand under the governing authorities of this land? Now you say, but I didn't vote for them. God still calls you to stand under their authority. You say, but pastor, my true citizenship is in heaven. Yes, it is. But if you are a citizen of the Bahamas, you are to stand under the government God has allowed for his purposes. Four reasons God gives us that we are to stand under governing authorities. Ready? And the first point in your outlines is this. We are to submit to God by submitting to the governing authorities which he puts into our lives. We are to submit to God by submitting to the governing authorities that he puts into our lives. And we all must submit to these governing authorities for four reasons given to us by the text. God gives us four reasons why we are to submit to him by submitting to the governing authorities he puts over us because he knew we would need four reasons. <laughs> we would need four reasons. And we need four reasons. The first reason God gives you and me to submit to the governing authorities is this. The governing authorities are all established by God. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, 
and those which exist are established by God. God establishes the governing authorities over us. I like to have plants around me, both outdoors and indoors. And if I want to establish a house plant, then I transplant it, I put it in a decorative pot, and I set it on my desk. That's how I establish a house plant. God has established governing authorities. Let's go on to the second reason we're to submit to governing authorities. It's this, the governing authorities are all God-instituted. In the first reason, they're all God-established. In the second reason, they're all God-instituted. Another way of saying that governing authorities are God-instituted is to say that governing authorities are God's Ordinance. They're the ordinance of God. So if I establish the house plant by taking it, putting in a decorative plot and pu- pot and putting it on my desk, then I um, um, institute that plant by watering it every day, by fertilizing it every two months, by pulling off the dead leaves and the dead blooms. God has both established governing authorities and God has instituted these governing authorities. Verse two, therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So watch this, God has told us in this paragraph that he has both established and instituted governing authorities. That is, God is telling us that he has established, brought into being governing authorities, and God has instituted these governing authorities. He has kept them in their place. God raises up governments and God takes down governments. And you and I might have a hard time seeing these things, that God has established the government, that God has instituted the government for this time, but we have to take it at face value, and we have to submit accordingly in obedience to God. There's a third reason we are to submit to governing authorities in the text, and it is this, the governing authorities all have God-given power, watch it, God-given power to do two things, to reward what God calls good or to punish what God calls evil. The power that the government in the Bahamas has on loan from God is power to punish evil and to reward good as defined by God. Look at verses three and four. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Verse 4, for it, governing authority, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger to bring wrath upon the one who practices evil. We are to submit to governing authorities because they have God-given power to punish evil and to reward good. There's more. There's a fourth reason in the text that God tells us, commands us to submit to governing authorities, and it is this, fourth reason. The governing authorities are a matter of Christian conscience, a matter of Christian conscience. Verse five, please. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. That's hupotasso, stand under. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Imagine with me that you're on Bay Street and there's a store you walk into on Bay Street that has an item that is very interesting to you, but you don't have the money to purchase the item. 
And so you give in to the temptation to steal the item, and when the shopkeeper is dealing with another customer or cashing someone else at the cash register and they're not looking, you steal the item. There are at least two good reasons you should never have done that as a born-again, blood-bought child of God. Number one, it's a sin against holy God, and God is no thief, so his followers don't steal. But second, it's a crime against the law of the Bahamas. Stealing displeases the Lord, and it breaks one's fellowship with the Lord, and stealing breaks the law of the land that God has established, and additionally, practically speaking, stealing drives the price of all the other items in that store up for all the innocent buyers who don't steal. So let's recap. God is commanding each and every one of us here today to submit to the governing authorities because, one, they are God-established, two, they are God-instituted, three, they have God-given power to either reward or punish us, and four, they are a matter of Christian conscience. It's a part of your spiritual life, if you do this or not. Let me illustrate further. The police, the Royal Bahamian Police Force, and their policing of me are God-established and God-instituted. The police possess God-given powers to either reward me or to punish me based on my compliance with the law or my breaching of the law. And this being the case, my respect for the Royal Bahamian Police Force and my obedience to Bahamian law, which the police enforce, is a spiritual life issue. It's not a a personal preference issue. It's not merely a pragmatic issue. It's a spiritual life, conscience before God issue. I'm really grateful that from a very young age, my parents taught me a truth that has never escaped my notice, that if you're doing right, you never have to be afraid of the police. If you're doing right, you never have to be afraid of the police. You can see them as your helper. They will help you if you have a need. They will help you out if you are doing right. You only fear the police if you're doing wrong. By the way, you know why the atheist doesn't find God? For the same reason the burglar doesn't find the police. So, to drive it home one more time, there are a few things to notice from verses 1 to 5 of Romans chapter 13. Notice first, governing authorities are God-established. Notice second, governing authorities are God-instituted. Notice third, that governing authorities have God-given power to reward or to punish. And notice fourth, that governing authorities are a matter of Christian conscience. And now there are some spin-off truths to that, those truths. One spin-off truth is that proper authority rewards good. That's the first part of verse three. Proper authority rewards good. Second spinoff, proper authority restrains evil. Proper authority restrains evil. That's in the second part of verse three and the second part of verse four. Third spinoff, proper authority deters crime, deters crime by inflicting capital punishment. Verse four's word for sword is very clear. There are three Greek words in the New Testament for swords. They're all translated swords, but they're very different. One Greek word for sword means a dagger, a little switchblade kind of sword that you would fight in a hand-to-hand fight on the streets. 
That's the sword of the Spirit in, in Ephesians 5, the armor of God passage. The sword of the Spirit is a dagger in tight battle with the adversary. Get him under the ribcage, that kind of a sword. There's another New Testament Greek word for sword, which is a, a medium-length sword to use for fencing. That's not the sword that's in view in verse 4. The third kind of sword that is in view in verse 4 is the executioner's sword. The biggest sword possible. That's the Greek word chosen for verse 4. For it, governing authorities, is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. We don't have enough criminals afraid. Afraid of God? They're not afraid of God. Afraid of government? They're not afraid of government. They don't, they don't revere life. They're hoodlums. And we have the highest number of murders in the Bahamas last year because they aren't afraid of God or the government that God puts in place. For it, governing authorities, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword, the executioner's sword, for nothing. For it, governing authorities, is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So proper authority, spin-off one, rewards good. Proper authority, spin-off two, restrains evil. Spin-off three, proper authority deters crime by inflicting, inflicting capital punishment. And fourth spin-off, proper authority protects life and property. I see that in the first part of verse four. But, however, there's a fly in the ointment. And you and I know it. It's the elephant in the room. The fly in the ointment, the elephant in the room, is what if human governing authority is evil? What if government is corrupt and blasphemous? What if governing authority goes against the Bible and against the will of God? What about that? Hear me now, don't be distracted. Now is not the time to be distracted. Scripture makes it clear that when this is the sad case, there are exceptions to God's call and command to us to submit to governing authorities. The believers in Europe were biblically right when they disobeyed Hitler and the Nazis and hid the Jews so they would not be killed. Here is the exception that crosses over all time. When obedience to human authorities would mean disobedience to God, then we are to disobey human authorities. Put another way, when man's laws are opposite to God's laws, we obey God and not man. It's called civil disobedience. I will go to jail as a pastor in the Bahamas before I would marry gay people. What we're saying when we say our highest allegiance is to God over human government that is against God, we are saying we put God first. There are many biblical examples of civil disobedience. 
Not killing the Jewish male babies in Egypt, Exodus chapter one. Not worshiping or serving the Babylonian idols in Daniel chapter three. Continuing to pray when it was made illegal to do so in Babylon in Daniel chapter six. Continuing to preach Christ when ordered to stop in Acts four and five. And so we are to submit to governing authorities, believers, as long as they don't require us to sin. Second point in our outlines. We are to submit to God by submitting to our creditors. Creditors are people to whom we owe stuff. We are to submit to God by submitting to our creditors. We are to stand under and to respect those to whom we owe money, to whom we owe respect, to whom we own honor. Verses six and seven. For because of this, you also pay taxes, And rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Clearly, the two verses paint for us four debts that we owe. Four creditors that we have. Taxes, customs, respect, and honor. Taxes, customs, respect, and honor. Let's take them one at a time. Taxes. The Greek word here, which is translated taxes, was a word that was reserved for income taxes in the Roman Empire and property taxes. And back then, when the Romans were ruling Palestine, there was income tax due and there were property taxes due, owed to the Roman emperor by the conquered citizens of Rome. These taxes were a price to be paid for being defeated by the Roman army. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, hated because it was like a franchise, like H&R Block. The Romans hired Jews to collect the taxes, told the Jews how much tax they wanted as Rome, and said, whatever you can charge the people beyond what Rome's cut is, you can have. And that's why Zacchaeus and all the tax collectors were hated. These are direct taxes. God says there are certain direct taxes that we owe that we should pay. You own property? Charge property taxes? Pay them. Don't evade them. Don't be deceptive about them. Do you know why? Because God owes no one anything. And God's children don't owe others known debt that they refuse to pay. Now, verse 6 tells us why these taxes are justified. And this may surprise you. It tells us that civil servants, including tax collectors, are servants of God. Amazing, verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. By the way, the parallel truth to this truth would be that since pastors and missionaries are servants of God as well, tithes and offerings are also justified. From taxes, the text moves us to another thing we owe, which are customs. Verse 7, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom. Customs here are indirect taxes, sales taxes, VAT, Paradise Island bridge tolls that went up by 100%. Did you notice? Duties, tariffs, 
stamp taxes. These are customs. And God says to the believers at Rome first, and by extension to us second, verse six, for because of this, you also pay taxes and rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom. We resemble our heavenly father when we pay the taxes we ought to pay and not have an outstanding debt due to negligence or deceit. Because God owns it all. God owns it all. I'm acquainted with a Christian family that were seen as real leaders in the last local church I pastored in Pennsylvania. Everyone observing their family and their service in the local church would say they were pillars of Christian character. But I came to find out that they willfully, secretly, failed and refused to declare massive amounts of their income to the IRS only down the road to fail to qualify for social benefits which they really came to need. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. And man reaps what he sows. Who would have thought that submitting to our creditors, including government, is a practical way to display a redeemed and a changed life? It ought not really to surprise us because Jesus' words dovetail with what we're teaching. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so we move on from taxes and from customs to two other debts we owe, respect and honor. Respect and honor. Apparently, the Lord demands that we show sincere respect and an attitude of genuine high esteem for all public officials. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, we owe our public officials the debt of our respect and honor, if not for who they are, for the office they hold as elected officials. And when we watch television in the House of Assembly, and it's clear that across all party lines, they don't even respect each other, God calls us to respect the office that these members of parliament hold. It's hard. Supernatural. Supernatural. Third point in our outlines. We are to submit to God and to have it to show in our love for one another. Think of it. We can show our submission, our standing under God as head of the church, Jesus Christ as head of the, this incredible body of Christ by how we treat each other. We are to submit to God and have it to show in our love for one another and in our refusal to love our own flesh. Verses 8 to 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Amazing. Love here is not phileo love. That's in the New Testament. That's friendship love. That's you do something nice for me, love, and I'll do something nice back to you, love. That's not the word here. It's not eros love, uh, sexual, uh, marital, intimate love. That's not the word in view either. No, the love that's here is agape love, the highest kind of love, God's love, love by definition that sees the deepest need in the person who is loved and then sacrificially gives to meet that need without concern for the cost or the payback. It's that kind of love that we're called to love each other with. To know each other's needs, 
to sacrificially give to meet that need without concern for the cost to us or the payback by the person we're loving. And who are we to agape? Verse 8 tells us, Owe nothing to anyone except to agape one another. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. We are to agape love one another and our neighbor. Who's our neighbor? Well, it's not just the person with the consecutive number on your street on either side of your house. Your neighbor, Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan, your neighbor is anybody who crosses your path that has need. Anybody who crosses your path who has need. That's your neighbor. God says, you will properly submit to me if you stand under this command and you agape love the brothers and the sisters in Christ in the fellowship, but then anyone who crosses our path this week who is in need. When this is understood, what do verses 8 to 10 teach us about our debt of agape love to one another and our neighbors? First, it teaches us that this is a continuing ongoing, never-ending debt. We're never fully up, paid up on the debt we have to agape love others. Verse 8a, owe nothing to anyone except to love. Pay your taxes, pay your tariffs, pay your duty, pay your bridge tolls, pay your property taxes, but you'll never fully pay up your obligation to love others. It's a continuous debt that we owe, but also it fulfills the law. God says in verse 8 that when we agape love one another and our neighbors, we fulfill his law, verse 8b. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Wow. Relative to my fellow man, when I agape love him or her, I have fulfilled the law. That's amazing. But as helpful as verses 8 to 10 are when they tell us to submit to God by loving one another, verses 11 to 14, I believe, are even more helpful because verses 11 to 14 tell us to submit to God by loving one another and not by loving our own flesh. Flesh is part of every one of us until we see Jesus through death or or the rapture. Flesh is that part of us, our intellect, our emotion, our will, our body with its senses, uncontrolled by the Holy Spirit. Our flesh is that part of us that is at war with the Holy Spirit who lives within us as converted Christians. It's a civil war within us between the Holy Spirit of God who deserves the control and our flesh which won't shut up. It's an ongoing battle. Our flesh is demanding. Our flesh wants to be catered to. Our flesh wants to be in control. Our flesh wants to be pandered to. Our flesh wants to call the shots. God says, no, you stand under my leadership in your life by agape loving, born again believers in your assembly, anyone who crosses your path who has a need, and don't love your own flesh. Make no provision for the flesh, It says in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Let's pick it up at 11. 
And do this knowing that the time is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly in the day, not carousing and and drunkenness and not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. We are commanded not to make provision for our flesh, not to love our flesh, not to make sacrifices that our fleshly uh, desires could be met for three reasons in the text. First, the time is ripe. You know when a mango is ready. You know when a banana on the tree is ready, when it's ripe. God says the time is ripe, so don't love your flesh. The time is ripe, verse 11. And do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. I'm told there are three measures of time. One is called world time. For years, we only operated on world time. We set our clocks according to the celestial bodies in the heavens. But in 1972, a second way of keeping time was adopted when we switched to atomic time. And this method of timekeeping measures hours, minutes, and seconds, not merely by the big picture in the heavens, but by the highly accurate vibrations of the atom. But really, believers, there's a third measurement of time. And the third measurement of time is our relationship to God time. And God's timing is perfect. When we recognize our own accountability to God, when we see that now is the time to surrender ourselves with, with the proper values, thoughts, and attitudes in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become aware that our eternal rescue is closer than ever before, verse 11. Because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, we should heed the warning that time is running out for this world, verse 12. If we're going to live honestly and lovingly and submittedly, we must do so now. So why do we refuse to love our flesh in favor of standing under and loving God and each other and our neighbor? Because the time is ripe. Second reason, the return of Christ and our glorifications are more near with the passage of every single day. 11, and this we do knowing that time, the time that that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. 12, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Third reason, we're not to pander to our flesh. Currently, there is a spiritual fashion show going on. And in the Lord's estimation, the deeds of darkness, sensual indulgences, and interpersonal strife are all grossly out-of-style clothing for today. Furthermore, by the Lord's estimation, the armor of light, decency, and Christ-likeness are all wonderfully fashionable garments for us to put on. I drive by the Montague Fish Market at least twice a day. Those hardworking fishermen go out early in the morning and get their catch and they bring it back to the beach in the parking lot there and they sell their fresh fish. I want you to imagine that you're a fisherman 
and you wear certain clothes to go fishing, and you have a certain t-shirt and shorts you wear and flip-flops, and you catch your fish, and God gives you a good day, and you gut your fish, and you clean your fish, and your shirt gets full of blood and full of fish innards and stinks, and you go home, and you take off your shirt, and you take off your shorts, and you take off your flip-flops and you throw the garments in the dirty laundry hamper and you hose down your sandals and then you go in the house and you shower. And you shampoo your hair and you clean your body with soap and you are clean. You don't go back to where you dumped your fish, blood fish and guts clothing and put it on for the rest of the evening in the house. You don't do that. That would be unfashionable. Because of the sacrifice that we remember at the Lord's table today, Jesus cleaned, cleaned us up. He took off a wardrobe that was unbecoming and stinky, and he robed us in his own righteousness. And part of living with that robe of Christ's righteousness, according to Romans chapter 13, is that we submit in the ways that God has commanded us to submit. We put some things off and we put other things on. And so I ask you this morning, are you in style? Not by the world's measurement, but are you in style based on heaven's estimation? You are, if and only if, you are standing under the human authority that God has put into your life that is punishing evil and rewarding good. You are, if and only if, you are standing under your creditors, be they financial or otherwise. You are, if and only if, you are standing under the Lord your God by agape loving one another and your neighbor as yourself. And so we are called as we come to the table to submit, to stand under, and to be in style. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, standing under is supernatural, but thank you that our redeemed lives are supernatural too. And so we would choose, Lord Jesus, to live moment by moment controlled by the precious Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. We ask that you would grant us grace to stand under our human government, under our human creditors, and under you, Lord, as we properly love the family of God and the, and the neighbor who presents to us this week. We pray this in your holy name and for your sake. Amen.